Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 90 of UFO Encounters Worldwide. This is your host, Jesse Peak, MUFON field investigator in the state of Pennsylvania, city of Philadelphia. And today we have a really good episode for you. We have special guest Ron Westrom, who is a researcher, a sociologist in the field of technology and science, and he's also a fellow team member of the UAP Medical Coalition. So we'll be getting into how his background has helped him in the field of ufology, some of the research he's done throughout his time, and also his part that he's playing in UAP Medical Coalition. Um, so we have a lot to go over, so strap on them seatbelts, we're going for a ride. Hello everybody and welcome to episode 90 of UFO Encounters Worldwide. This is your host, Jesse Peak, MUFON field investigator in the state of Pennsylvania, city of Philadelphia. And today's episode is sponsored by the new and sought-after book, Spiritual Consciousness, A Personal Journey, by author and experiencer Kevin J. Briggs. You can get your copy at www.kevinjbriggs.com. Today, I'm sitting down with special guest, researcher, sociologist, and member of the UAP Medical Coalition, Ron Westrom. Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jesse. Um, so I guess let's get involved in how you got involved in the, the field of ufology, being a sociologist in the science and tech <laughs> field. <laughs> right. Well, I, I, I've always been interested in, in strange stuff. And uh, I remember, you know, when I was in junior high school, um, I was I, I challenged somebody to a debate on flying saucers. And my mother went to the library and got some books, uh, mostly by uh, Donald Kehoe, who at that time was, I mean, this is probably in the 1950s, okay? So there weren't a lot of books on UFOs. Uh, Kehoe has turned out actually to be a very reliable uh, writer about this. Um, I know it for many years, it was a questionable whether he was a serious or not, but it turns out all of his stuff was good. He really knew what he was talking about and what he said was correct. So anyway, years later, uh, when I was in college, I got very interested in things like Bigfoot and sea serpents and so forth. And uh, actually, um, uh, when I finally got my PhD uh, in complex organizations, part of sociology, um, I was still interested in sea serpents and I began to to uh, look at the literature very carefully. I read a book by Bernard Holmes called In the Wake of the Sea Serpents, which was at that time the definitive book on sea serpents. And then I noticed that there, you know, I decided that I would reinvestigate some of the cases to make sure that he got it right. So I essentially wrote down a list of errors. I'm sure they weren't all the errors. <laughs> and I wrote Bernard a letter and saying, you know, here's the list of errors in your book on sea serpents, and, uh, <laughs> and so he wrote back and he told me, he said, you missed the biggest one. He said, I mislabeled one of the charts. It switched labels. Actually, That's great. And which was a very serious thing, completely screwed up the data. And obviously, since there were later editions, he corrected that in later editions. But he and I got to know each other. And I never forget the first time I met Hoyle Williams in person. So he was on a naturist island, which was off the south of France. Um, naturist islands have people who are running around naked. Okay. <laughs> and so here was Bernard, 
he was outside of his hut. He was brown as a nut and he was buck naked and he was obviously well tanned. And so that was my introduction <laughs> to um, the, the sea servant business. And I got to know Bernard very well. We, uh, there were other times we got together. He was uh, just a marvelous person. His stuff, his research was actually very good. And um, so I did that for some years and then I began to get instant UFOs again. And at that time, I spent uh, a lot of effort reading the literature. So I, I remember when the Condon report came out in what was 69 and they said, well, there's really nothing to it. And I thought, oh, shucks. <laughs> and then I found out that the Condon report was shucks. Yes, it was. It was, you know, really very bad science, very bad science. Um, and so then I got, I began to do some uh, UFO field investigation. I, I met Walt Andrus of, of MUFON. I joined MUFON. I became a sociological consultant for MUFON um, and even had a uh, MUFON national meeting in Ann Arbor. Um, I can't remember exactly what year this was, but back in the 70s. Um, so eventually, I, I came across my first a close encounter case. And uh, the name of the person, she's dead now, Alicia Gruen. She had had a, an experience where she was in her kitchen canning and one of her sons is looking out the back window. He says, mom, he said, look at the airplane. And she said, what airplane? And she steps out on the back porch and here near her garage was a 20 foot red sphere. And while she was, you know, in, somewhat in shock, seeing this, something about the size of a double bed, it's how she described it, came down and started talking to her. Um, and she just absolutely flipped out. Um, I met her a month later. Um, at that time, she was still uh, in the throes of post-traumatic stress. I sat in her kitchen for eight hours straight. Uh, she didn't offer me any food. <laughs> <laughs> perils of investigating. And um, she was literally bouncing off the walls. I've never seen anybody in my life that flipped out. Um, eventually, the story had a happy ending. A female ufologist came by, Ali, um, what was her name? Uh, Iris Mack. And Iris hypnotized her and you know got a regression. And, uh, and after that, actually, uh, Alicia began to return to being a normal person. She was actually quite a character. And uh, once uh, she had sort of gotten um, deprogrammed, as it were, she actually was on a lot of radio programs. And she was a real uh, personality for the local radio stations. Um, but Alicia had been a, uh, an abductee in her early life. Uh, she was in an orphanage when basically UFO decided to stop by at night and in a row of beds of obviously sleeping children and little guys came through the window and they went over to her and she was trying to, she was pretending she was asleep because she was just terrified. And she said, you know, that 
they put rods through her eyes into her brain. Oh. Now, at that time, I hadn't anything like that. And I thought, you know, what is this? You know. Um, so anyway, I spent a lot of time with Alicia over the, the next uh, months and so forth, talking to her about these events. And um, eventually she wrote a book. It didn't get published, but I read it. And uh, so that was my introduction to uh, Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind. And, and uh, after that, I began to meet other people who had had um, essentially abduction experiences. And I think all in all, I probably talked to about 30 people at some length about this. I didn't hypnotize anybody. But um, I did find a lot of people had had essentially abduction experiences. Um, one of the cases we came across was a young woman who had been sitting on a seaplane dock with her boyfriend, and a essentially a UFO came down, uh, picked her up, took her away, and obviously returned her. Um, but she never trusted men again after that because the man had done nothing. The boy, I suppose, oh, had wow. done nothing to protect her. Wow. So, of course, we realize today that probably that person was cooled out in some way. And there wasn't anything he could have done. He's probably paralyzed. Right. But um, so I, I remember this, had a, this case had a happy ending in that she was about 35 at the time. Um, she got interested in going out on dates again, and uh, I guess, you know, then proceeded to have an actual social life. Um, so, so here's an example of something that happens to people as a result of being abducted, is that you can lose faith in other people if they're there and they don't do anything. And you don't know that, that they can't do anything. That's interesting. So, it, yeah. So anyway, um, so you know, time went on, and as, as as time went on, I did less field investigation and more reading. I got to know Bud Hopkins and Dave Jacobs very well, uh, especially uh, Dave Jacobs, uh, who is still a friend of mine. And um, I got very interested in well, what is this stuff? What's really going on? And it bothered me essentially that. Um, all this stuff seemed to be real enough for the abductees. And if you read Intruders or any of their other books like it, you find out that it's not just what people remember, it's things that happen to the environment around them and so on and so forth. It's very complicated. The abduction experiences is not something that is essentially a personal psychological event. It's, it's real, it happens to people, other people see it. Uh, sometimes there are group abductions. In fact, the one that I really wanted to find out about was the case of the Connecticut hikers. This is mentioned in Bud Hopkins' um, autobiography called um, Art, Life, and UFOs. And the Connecticut hikers case is interesting because it involved a bunch of different people. Um, it, was, uh, it started out essentially with the UFO coming down to a nearby mountain. I forget what I, this was upstate New York or something like that, coming down to a nearby mountain. And then 
the people who were assembled, who happened, who just happened to be there, had this group of hikers who walked by. That's what they called them, hikers. And they all had um, little goggles on or something. And then they sort of marched by. And so when Bud Hopkins originally got turned up into the onto this case, um, he asked them, said, well, you know, they marched by, he said, what did the backs look like? And then the first person he asked said, well, we didn't see them from the back. Hmm. Okay. Well, anyway, this case involved about 12 people, um, but they were, they were essentially four groups of people who had no relationship to each other, except obviously in the group. And so trying to investigate this case was very difficult because, for instance, uh, one of the guys was a veteran. When he started being regressed about this, he couldn't handle it. He said it was too much. I don't want to go, go into this. Um, and so this was the part where basically he had remembered in the regression that the, these people had turned toward him or whatever the hikers were, they turned toward him. And he, he said that was the worst part. And then he broke the hypnotic bond and woke up and said, I don't want to talk about this. Wow. Um, <clears throat> and there, there are other things. It's worth reading the case in some detail. So when I was at Jacob's house, we looked, looked for the records for this case. Problem was that it was probably under somebody's name. Oh, I don't know the names. And uh, so we never found the records. But this was investigated by Ted Blocher, who was a, a guy who was really a very good investigator. Um, and it helped Hopkins earlier uh, in doing the work with the, uh, the case where the uh, guy who was a liquor dealer was stopping by somewhere in New Jersey and these little guys came down and came out of the UFO. Uh, I'm trying to remember the Obarski, the first time I met about Hopkins, that's what he was talking about. He's talking about the Obarski case. But the Obarski case led to tremendous amount of publicity for Bud Hopkins because it appeared in the Village Voice, uh, probably circulation about 30,000. And then it was picked up by Cosmopolitan circulation, probably about two or three million. Yeah. Okay. That's big. Bud Hopkins got an enormous number of letters about this case. Now, unfortunately, they were not in the collection that Dave Jacobs had. But um, this essentially brought Hopkins in contact with many of the people who then became the subjects of later books. So the interesting thing about this is that there was kind of positive feedback process where by finding out about this and then writing it up, you get letters from other people and you investigate their sightings and so on and so forth. So this is exactly what, by the way, the French didn't have. This is why the <laughs> French don't have, they think, any abductions. See, that's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's crazy because they're so open about the sightings, but they don't believe in abductions. It's mind-blowing. Well, yeah, I have a chart. I made it, I made them a little chart, basically. <laughs> and so here's here's the story. So if you've got 
somebody like Bud Hopkins, who writes about it, and then asks for people to write him. It's interesting, but in the French books about this, it never says, you know, if, if you've had one of the experiences, write me. It's something that's very simple, but if you don't think of it, then you don't get any other reports. So the French basically have a huge poverty of reports. I think they have exactly the same number of abductions, but they don't. <laughs> right. But until you see the dynamics, this is where an information scientist comes in. So if, until you see the dynamics, you don't understand that basically what a psychologist would call the demand conditions are absent in France. Nobody's asking to get a report. So yeah, they've got, you know, maybe a couple dozen cases or something like that. I asked Dave Jacobs, I said, you've got an online thing. He said, I said, how many cases from France? He said, 23. And this is some of the, basically in the United States, doesn't speak French, okay? Hmm. So the question is, how many real cases are there? Well, the answer is, you're not gonna find out until you do a survey, which is of course why Hopkins and Jacobs did their survey. Um, now we can talk a little bit about the survey, but the only thing that I wanna really underline about this is that the survey was done by good, sampling methods, okay? Most surveys about abductions are not done by good sampling methods. So what happens is, and this is true of the cases that are in uh, this book, Beyond UFOs by Free. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, Jeff? I do know the Free, yes. Yep. Okay, so the, the Free study is basically worthless. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I've heard. <laughs> um, and um, the reason is very simple. They didn't do anything to secure anything like a systematic or random sample. And it's interesting. I talked to one of the Opus advisors. I, I won't mention his name. And he told me about 12 or 13 different surveys he was familiar with, none of whom had actually done any serious scientific sampling. So the underlying question, basically, is it fun? <laughs> It's not a question that you can answer because we really don't know what percentage of people have a good trip and people who have a bad trip. Right. Hopkins and Jacobs obviously talk to people who have had sightings that are very much like the ones that they have investigated and publicized. People are attracted to them because it's their kind of thing. Okay, gotcha. And, and I think the free people do the same thing. It's like, you know, so Probably. I can't answer the question, you know, is it fun? Right. You know, is it? Because I don't know. Okay. <laughs> but what I can say is I'm pretty sure that it's pretty common. I, I would have to agree. Absolutely. Okay. So why do I, let, let me tell you why I think that. You can tell me why you think that. We got about a minute left. Just so you so, know too. Okay. Well, let me save my remarks for the next. All right. No version. problem then. All right. Let's do our commercial break now and then we'll come back and we can dive right back into where we left off. So we'll be right back after these commercial messages. Introducing the new and sought after book, Spiritual Consciousness, A Personal Journey by author and experiencer Kevin J. Briggs. See the photos of what Kevin witnessed 
and links for the book at ufoencountersworldwide.wordpress.com or in the description of the episode below. Again, that's Spiritual Consciousness, A Personal Journey by Kevin J. Briggs. Looking for some new awesome UFO swag and merchandise? Check out UFO Encounters Worldwide official merchandise store. Go to storefrontier.com slash UFO Encounters Worldwide. Find sweatpants, t-shirts, tie-dye, even baby clothing. Anything you can imagine, we have it. Check it out today. Again, that's storefrontier.com slash UFO Encounters Worldwide. UFO Encounters Worldwide wants to hear from you. Have an experience or a sighting you want to share? Contact your host, Jesse Peak, at UFO Encounters Worldwide at gmail.com today. This is your host, Jesse Peak. Check out our official website at UFO Encounters Worldwide.wordpress.com. Read up on UFO articles, including abductions, close encounters, sighting cases, megalithic structures, and more. Also, check out our new Facebook group. You'll get updates on guests every week, new events coming up, and our schedule of who we're going to have on in the future. Again, that's UFO Encounters Worldwide Facebook group and our website at ufoencountersworldwide.wordpress.com. UFO Encounters Worldwide would like to announce our brand new home at the UNX Network. Listen to us every Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to hear UFO Encounters Worldwide podcast. That's on the UNX Network. All right, welcome back to the second half of episode 90 with our special guest, Ron Westrom. Uh, before the break, um, we were talking about experiencer phenomenon in France and uh, the possible percentages. And uh, we were going to hear your take about why you think it's more than what they actually think. Right. Okay, so there are three reasons I think that probably the percentage is one in 20. So the first thing is that there was a member of MUFON who quickly asked 150 of his friends, is a lot of friends, <laughs> <laughs> if they thought that they had, had been abducted, okay? And the answer was five out of 150. So that's one in 30, okay? So uh, my second reason is that I talked to, to Debbie, who was the, the person in Intruders, who actually now I met in person. I had never met her before, but I met her last last conference that I went to. And I said, okay, you know, can you tell who's been an, an abductee? And she said, yes. I said, how can you tell? She said, if I look at if I look them in the eyes, basically, I can tell. Really? I said, okay. So that's what she said. Debbie Cobble, I think her name is. Okay, yeah, so I know her. Anyway, yeah. So anyway, she I said, so 
So then if that's, if you can tell what percentage of the population are abductees? And she said, well, it's about one in 25. And uh, I said, fine. Okay, I bought that. Um, now, of course, neither of these things are terribly persuasive. But the third thing is the thing that's persuasive to me. And that is that typically, um, back when I used to go to cocktail parties, and every so often I would talk about the, the stuff, abductions and so forth. And then after, after a while, somebody would come up to me and say, you know, you're one of the people, I'm one of the people you were, you've been talking about. So I thought, what are the probabilities here? Okay, to have this happen once, you know, I could see it, but have it happen twice, yeah, this is a common event. So the question is, of course, most of us have friends who we say, well, you know, if they were abductees, we would know. Well, <laughs> that's really? not true. Do you ever ask them? Okay. So my partner is a social worker. So I said, any of your clients ever, you know, show signs that they might be abductees? She said, oh, absolutely not. I said, have you ever asked them? She said, of course not. So, um, the Bud Hopkins and Dave Jacobs report, which I eventually helped to edit and write, write some stuff up for, um, was probably the most competent sample ever done of people who are potentially had an, uh, uh, an abduction. So um, at the end of the report, they estimated that something like one in 50 people were abductees. But that didn't agree with the other no, <laughs> the other methods that I used. And I actually think it's I actually think it's one in 20. And the thing is is that considering that um, it says our my internet connection is unstable here, that's not good. Um, considering that um, most UFO sightings, in quotes, turn out to be not sightings, they're something else. Um, this means that probably abductions are more common than sightings are. Anyway, that's just a thought. I would agree, um, though. I'd have to agree 100% because working with MUFON and doing regular sighting cases and then working on the ERT, I am 10 times busier with the experiencer reports than I am with regular sighting cases. Double to double to compare of sightings, at least. Right. At least. Right. So I think the thing is you have to, and this is of course, this is why I the sociologist, you have to figure out, you know, what are the probabilities? What what are the chances of this happening? Um, who's going to talk and why would they talk and so forth? So the Hopkins stuff was very helpful to me in understanding that for the most part, they, they don't talk. You know, there's no reason for them to come forward, right? Um, because unless they can actually get some some expertise on the subject, they find somebody who can actually tell them what's going on, or like Bud and Dave, basically they've got people who have other abductees. Um, it's it's just very difficult for them to know. You know what how they would be received and i so i remember one day for instance in this go ahead i was going to say too the other thing is that, that there's not a lot of resources out there 
to even figure it out to know that you can go to somebody and talk to them, for example, MUFON and right. Opus and, and all these other organizations. You know, I didn't find out until very late in my life that there was organizations like this. Um, so right. people don't know. Well, yes, there was a book called Welcome to the New Age. And one of the pages was Welcome to Your Local Alien Abduction Support Group. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, yeah, well, it's it, I, I thought that was very funny. Um, but I was in a room one day when I was looking at sightings of Brooklyn, which is a small town uh, in the south of Michigan. Uh, and we had probably about 18 people in the room all of whom were experiencers. And the reason they knew about each other is that they were all in the same neighborhood. Hmm. And I guess that some of the housewives must have had experiences that were group-based because a conversation like the following would take place. And one would say, well, what about the, the Boy Scouts that we saw last night? The other one say those weren't Boy Scouts; those are monkeys. Oh my God! And so forth. And it turned out essentially that three, three or four of them had been on a bus. You can imagine what the bus looked like, hmm. um, <laughs> which took them somewhere else. Um, and the other thing is that once you start thinking about this in terms of numbers, it's one of the things I do. If you think about this in terms of numbers, you've got obviously some of that that's happening to maybe a neighborhood, a city, you know? So how many cases are there? And the problem is we still don't know. Um, the Hopkins and Jacobs things would have been terrific if the people who Hopkins and Jacob designated as, as abductees based on symptoms had ever been asked, well, do you remember anything like, you know, uh, UFO abduction taking place? They never were. Um, so we don't know that. So it's really a, it's really a mess in terms of statistics. Okay, how many abductees are there? But there's certainly enough to provide the, nece the necessity and the rationale for the UFO medical coalition that we have, or I guess it's a UAP medical coalition. I got to get the terminology right. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you've had this kind of crap happen to you um, and things went, did not go well, I mean, it was a painful experience, who do you talk to? So we created the UAP Medical Coalition essentially to provide a pathway to people, to therapists by making therapists aware that their clients might have these kinds of events and to prevent the, the occurrence of people walking into a therapist's office and saying, well, you know, I had, I was abducted by aliens from a UFO. And the, the therapist then who's been trained in scientific method <laughs> would then say, well, huh, why do you think that? Instead of saying, well, okay, tell me about it. So that's the problem. The problem is that therapists are not really um, educated. Educated. And, you know, if you're an experiencer and you need to educate your therapist before getting therapy, you're in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because all of their training 
thinking it's going to suggest that probably not, that you're probably a schizophrenic. And we know that they're not schizophrenics. But the you know, huge majority are not schizophrenic. How do we know that? Because we've tested them. Bud Hopkins had a friend of his who was a psychologist who um, she probably got paid um, to interpret basically uh, nine psychological profiles for people who have taken exams, uh, like the MPI, for instance. And, um, and so the issue was, are these people psychotic? And the answer is no, they're not psychotic. Um, and in fact, I haven't met anybody that I've considered to be uh, psychotic that I talked to for any length of time Neither who had I. these experiences. Scared, disturbed, yeah. PTSD. Uh, and and et cetera. And of course, yeah, absolutely. In, in the great majority of cases. And that's why, by the way, I don't, I don't really think that for most people, this is a fun subject. No, not at all. Um, because there wouldn't be so many people terrifying. And the problem with ordinary reasoning is it doesn't really work very well for making scientific inferences. Yeah, and then you got to worry about so anyway, ridicule I from think people, it, you know? The judgment. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't, don't understand the force of ridicule. I remember when I was investigating a case on a poltergeist one time, uh, we were sitting around the living room with the grandparents and the, the, the subject, the kid basically, and the parents and so forth. And all of a sudden the grandfather looks at me and said, if you ever let out to anybody else that we've had experiences like this, see that cabinet over there, there's a gun in it and I'm gonna get that gun and kill you. Wow. Now, obviously the parents were, <laughs> Since they'd asked me to come down and talk to them, they were, you know, the parents were sort of disturbed that the, their father would threaten me like that. But it gives you some idea of how scary public response can be. And yeah, and you're just not going to talk about it. Let's talk about, I mean, just with the NASA hearings that happened the other day, there were 16 scientists and they were receiving ridicule, stigma, threats from other people in the scientific community. So then you can only oh, imagine, yeah. you can only imagine what the experiencers thinking about what other people are going to think of them. Am yeah. I lying? Am I, am I just lying to get attention? You know, um, am I, you know, are they going to believe me? Or are they going to think I'm a nut? Most likely <laughs> that's the stigma. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the original uh, survey that Bud and Dave did, um, they asked, um, they, they found out that there were actually huge numbers of members of the scientific community and the psychiatric community and the psychological community who had been experiencers, okay? Um, and I don't know who they talked to, <laughs> but uh, uh, so the thing is, is this is a um, non-discriminatory phenomenon. It takes people be when it, the germ plasm it doesn't care about who the people are socially um so 
the reason that we have a UAP medical coalition is that there are lots of people who are suffering from uh, being unable to talk to anybody about this, to those people getting therapy and medical attention. And obviously lately we've been finding out more about the medical problems that go along with close encounters. Um, and that actually was an eye opener to me. Um, because even though the people who I talked to who had gotten too close had various problems, um, I wasn't aware of some of the brain damage and other things like that, which um, Gary Nolan has been bringing out and um, which I suspect also, in fact, I obviously <laughs> came from Kid Green, who's <laughs> at Wayne State University, not far away. Um, and I'd heard about Mr. Green before. Uh, he's in a lot of shock ballets, so, uh, diaries or whatever you want to call them. Um, but so there are people who work for the government who go around investigating experiencers. Uh, I think Kid Green may be the tip of the iceberg. Um, but the basic point is that the ordinary person needs to have somebody that they can talk to about this. And of course, you know, getting social support for this, if you're in a family, I think, you know, Ted Rowe has said, essentially he ruins lots of Thanksgiving dinners and so forth by deciding to talk about this. Right. And um, it's, uh, I, I just, I just have a lot of compassion for people who don't really have anybody to talk to, and especially if the stuff that happens to them is disturbing. You know, it's not right. You know, this is something that people should be able to get therapy for. It's something that people should be able to talk to physicians about. Um, That's why I was right? actually really shocked about the whole thing of John Burroughs finally winning that case about having the medical issues that he walked away with when he came in contact with that craft in Rendlesham. Right. So that was a big win for the experiencer aspect, I thought, you know? Yeah. The problem is that um, we really need to approach the uh, therapeutic community and say, look, you know, we don't really understand what's going on here, but these people have really had these experiences, whatever they are. And, um, you need to be able to give them therapy for the basically the trauma if they had trauma um and, and you know this is not something that's made up it's not something that people are public seeking publicity for you know they're not looking for attention they're looking for for aid and aid and counsel basically so that's why we have a uap medical coalition yeah, and I don't know how many times, like working with the ERT, even even when they go ahead and initially make the report, that I'll get in touch with them, talk with them one time, and then they'll completely cut the contact because they're still worried about what you think of them and and if you're going to judge them or not. So it definitely needs to be what like what we're doing with UAP Med and getting the information out there publicly so people can educate themselves and understand that this is something that's going on, not just here in the United States, but worldwide too. Right. So I'll just give you two cases in my um, meager experience, which certainly attracted my attention to this issue. And the first one was basically, well, it's actually they're both, they're both from the same case. Um, but the first one was a husband and wife were unable to talk about the uh, 
abduction that they had had, because that's clearly what it was. Um, they had about five people had been partying up on a mountainside, and uh, they um, they saw something. And it's typical of these cases that they all saw something somewhat different. One person said it looked like a Christmas of people had had an abduction because he said that he remembered looking down on the group, the group that he was part of from above. He didn't say whether he saw himself or not, but, but he and his wife were unable to resolve as a result of um, having had this experience, were unable to talk about it at all. And eventually their marriage fell apart because here was something that was important, but they couldn't talk about it. Now, another one of the people who was involved in this, in this sighting, um, uh, when the other people were probably in their maybe uh, uh, 20s. This one was in her 40s. And so I went to interview her at her house. So we're sit standing out in the driveway talking about this stuff. And her husband comes home. And her, her husband says, well, what are you talking about? I'm like, why are you talking to my wife? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, we were talking about UFOs. And I didn't say, we're talking about her science, just that we're talking about UFOs. And the guy says, he says, UFOs, he said, we were talking about that the other night at Nora Plumley's house. Well, Nora Plumley was a well-known ex experiencer, or I don't know what you call it, what, exactly what this was, but Nora Plumley was very vocal about her uh, experiences. And so, so the husband says, you never told me about anything. And at that point, I took my leave rather than trying to yeah. <laughs> arbitrate the husband and wife Good uh, call. reunion here. Uh, and uh, so, but the interesting thing is she had not said anything to her husband at all about this event, uh, even though I don't think she was abducted. Um, but if you can't talk to your spouse about it, who the hell are you supposed to talk to? Right. You know? Um, that's so a shame. That, that's something that needs to be corrected. Absolutely. Um, and so, and this is, you know, this is not even, you know, I didn't even ask people in the community about this. And these people were simply pointed out to me by one of the, the, the actually the second wife of the guy who, who had been the abductee. So I, you know, it's it's just interesting that I came across this case. Of course, that's what I was looking for stuff, and that's one of the things I came across. Um, but what I wanted to say is that you know, here's you know, here are a whole range of things that people experience. Some of them are very disturbing, but nobody is talking about it, and nobody wants to hear you talk about it. It got to the point that, you know, I had a friend I used to do investigations with. He was a, basically trained in physics, had a master's degree in engineering or something like that. And so he and I and his wife are sitting around the table one evening drinking wine. And all of a sudden, the wife says to me, she says, I'm one of those people you're always talking about. 
And I just about fell out of my chair. And I said, what do you mean? She says, well, she said, I didn't want to become, you know, a subject for your investigation. How long had I known her? You know, years, okay? And she had never mentioned this to me, wow. in spite of the fact that her husband and I had done all this investigating together. So this gives you some idea of how closely this information is sometimes held by people. I have to absolutely agree because when I got into this field and, and I was doing it for a couple of years, we had friends and family members come over and for the first time they're telling me they had an experience or their father had an experience. And then they send them to me and they tell me about these crazy experiences they have. And it's like, where was all this before? <laughs> so you're absolutely right. Yeah. So you keep it in a secret casket with your love letters and so forth. And, <laughs> and, and you don't take it out for, for anybody unless you've got somebody who's, able to shed some light on it maybe right and even then i mean this person is a very close friend of mine and you know it's like i couldn't believe that she had not said anything about this previously yeah it's definitely mind-bending to think about it you know i don't know so so this is so this is a social problem and it's a hidden social problem it's very much in terms of its dynamics like child abuse you think, you know, this really can't happen to people I know. What we know about child abuse is that actually it does happen to people you know. Right. Yeah, it's um, just hidden. They keep it from you. Yeah, so I, I call this category of events a hidden event. And the definition is very simple. And I got it from a book on near-death experiences. And it goes like this. It's something that's widely experienced, but very well hidden. That's the definition of a hidden event. It's widely experienced, but it's very well hidden. Right to the point, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, and so this was also the story, obviously, with near-death experiences. It was also something that was, you know, closely held and not talked about until, you know, somebody said something to a surgeon. The surgeon thought, well, wait other cases like this. In fact, we know from a, a very careful study done by a Dutch um, 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 neurological physician that of people who, who sort of die on the operating table and are brought back maybe, you know, five, five minutes or so without oxygen, um, that about one in five has had a near-death experience. That's so that's actually a very good number. That's, yeah, that's, that's a the lot kind of people. Thing social scientists like to see. Is that, oh yeah, so we did a systematic study and this is what we find. <laughs> so we have about uh, a minute left. Um, do you wanna tell everybody, uh, I know you've written some books, you got some articles that you've been doing, some of the work you've been doing, if you wanna tell them where they can find that at. Um, and if anybody wants to get a hold of you, if you want to offer that, um, it's very, it's very simple. You go to Google images <laughs> and you put in Ron Westrom and you, you will find reference to all the organizational stuff that I've done, but also to some of this stuff. Okay. Awesome. And I make sure I'll put your bio in the description of the episode so everybody can get that information as well. Um, and I want to thank you for coming on and talking about this subject. It's very important. I think more people need to hear about it. So 
hopefully this will do part of that job, you know? Thank you, Jesse. Yeah, no problem. And uh, I will see you probably next Saturday at our next meeting. <laughs> I'm going Very to good. Pine Bush, New York this weekend for the UFO fair. So fantastic. We'll see how that goes. It should be fun. But uh, thanks wish, again for second to go. You should. You should come one year next year. <laughs> Make a trip. <laughs> I go every year. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Ron, for coming on today and sharing the information with us. It was definitely Absolutely. an honor and a pleasure. You take care. No problem. And uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's episode 90. Um, we'll be back next week with another special guest, Lala Bright. And please remember to go and check out our sponsor, um, Kevin J. Briggs' new book, Spiritual Consciousness, A Personal Journey. You can get that at www.kevinjbriggs.com. And until next time, remember to keep your eyes in the sky. Well, that was a great episode today. It's always good to get a scientific background on here to talk about the subject of ufology and how his background could work in the field of UFOs and what he's doing with it. So I want to thank Ron Westrom for coming on today and sharing that information with us and also sharing about the good work he's doing in UAP Medical Coalition um, with me and all the other team members. So it was great to have him on today. Thank you again, Ron, for coming on and sharing that with us. Next week, we have special guest, Lala Bright. She is doing some amazing things in the field with her and Science Bob. Uh, we'll also have him on in the future. Um, so we look forward to that. And also, don't forget to check out the new and sought after book, Spiritual Consciousness, A Personal Journey by author and experiencer Kevin Briggs. You can get your copy over at www.kevinjbriggs.com. I just received my signed copy this week in the mail, and I've already started digging in, and it's absolutely amazing. Um, the feedback and all the reviews have been nothing but excellent. Um, so I, I really uh, recommend going out and grabbing that book and checking it out. Um, so we'll be back next week with our special guest, La La Bright. And until next time, remember to keep your eyes in the sky.